0: Now this is recording. RTI International, International. Forensic presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In Episode 2 of The Identification Season... Just Science interviews Suzanne Birdwell, a forensic artist with the Texas Department of Public Safety and the current chair of the IAI Forensic Art Science and Practice Committee. With over 700 cases in her career, Suzanne Birdwell understands the nuances of forensic artistry. Throughout a collaborative process, forensic artists create likenesses to aid in recognition and identification of a criminal, a decedent, or a missing person. Listen along as our guest discusses sketching from memory facial reconstruction age progression and other aspects of forensic artistry this season is funded by the national institute of justice's forensic technology center of excellence here's your host dr john morgan
1: and welcome to just science the podcast for forensic science professionals i'm john morgan your host with rti's forensic technology center of excellence a program of the national Institute of Justice. We are here today in San Antonio for the International Association for Identification Conference in the summer of 2018. We are doing a series of episodes from here today. We're going to be doing something very unusual. We haven't looked at forensic art uh, before in the podcast. We have Suzanne Birdwell, who is the chair of the IEI Forensic Art Science and Practice Committee, is that correct?
2: Hello, yes, that is correct, thank you.
1: And she also is a forensic artist with the Texas Department of Public Safety. So you've worked a number of cases as a forensic artist and now you're working with IEI, trying to improve the practice of forensic art more broadly.
2: Correct, yes, I still am a full-time artist for the State Police of Texas and I've never counted exactly how many cases I have but it's over 700 at this point in my career Thank you. the okay. cat and I am a member of the IAI and am the chair currently to try to work on the other end of things, which is standards and guidelines, best practices, things like that.
1: Did you start off as somebody who was a forensic science person who discovered art, or were you an artist who discovered forensic science?
2: That's a great way to put it. I was an artist who discovered she suddenly really liked science.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Mm
2: -hmm. I was exposed to forensic art on a television show, but not a fiction show. It was before all, of the forensic craze hit Hollywood, maybe in the late 90s, and saw an interview, an interview with a sketch artist at that point. And it was about her process of interviewing a victim. It was very little about the art. It was about the cognitive processes that happened to allow someone's memories to come about in a way that we could then turn that description into a suspect's face on a drawing board.
1: That's an interesting way of putting it. Now, because I I don't think most folks appreciate that aspect of it, because a forensic artist is actually using several different modalities. They're not just a good drawer. They also have to be good at drawing out from the person the descriptive information. So there's there's a certain approach that must be taken in order to do that properly. So is there a methodology that is applied to be able to take what is in somebody's imperfect memory and turn it into information that you can put into a drawing?
2: That's a great question. That's exactly right. Forensic art as a title covers several different subjects, different genres, and the one most people think of is what we're talking about right now, which is suspect sketches or drawing from someone's memory, which is exactly this. And think of it as, say, a crime or an incident has happened, a person has witnessed the perpetrator, they could be the victim of that crime, or they witnessed a crime. And so someone knows what this person looks like, but there hasn't been another way to identify that person. So we'd like to get the image of that person's face in a tangible format that we can then use to try to get the person recognized and ultimately identified. So that comes about within an interview. And we as forensic artists have been trained on how to interview persons who have witnessed something. And many, many times they are the victim. So there's also that involved of understanding that they're going to have to go back to that time when they were a crime victim and describe this person. So you can imagine there's varying emotions that go with that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I know, uh, you know, one of the issues that has come up, for example, in sexual assault is helping police officers understand How memory works, especially post-traumatic memory, is very, very difficult. And there's been some more research lately in that area and uh, to try to understand that. And that's something that you all have to be very sensitive to when you're doing your work, I assume.
2: Forensic artists come to the field from different backgrounds. So some people who are doing this work, this artistic work, might be commissioned persons themselves, detectives and investigators, and some are not. My position is a civilian position. So I am a full-time forensic artist but I'm not an investigator. I'm not a commissioned person. A strong emotional event in anyone's life, whether it's a positive emotion or a negative emotion, is imprinted differently. We encode our memories through our senses, and it depends on what type of activity or event that was. But I really don't find that many of the witnesses and victims that I sit down with to do drawings have a difficult time remembering. There's some issues of sometimes of perspective distortion or the lighting might not have been ideal. You know, of course they don't know they're going to be sitting with an artist at some point so they're not necessarily thinking I really need to remember this, but when it comes down to us getting back to that event and to that memory, I don't find that it's as difficult for them to remember as people think that it is, but we have to be careful with how those questions are worded and being able to interpret what they're saying in words and turning that into a visual representation. Uh, sure. Just as a quick example, they will use descriptions like, he had mean eyes. So. Mean eyes is how she remembers him. And I have my own idea in my head what I think she means by that. But I can't draw what I think she means. I need to be sure I'm drawing what she is seeing in her head and what she's happy with. So the I say she, obviously there are male victims as well right so the drawing is a collaborative process it is an interview but it's such a soft interview that it is more like a conversation and we absolutely let them take the lead so that they are now in control after having been victimized and they are seeing the drawing come together during the whole interview it's not like on TV where the artist comes up with it and then turns the drawing board around for them to see for the first time like some kind of unveiling. It's not like that. uh, The witnesses or victims are a part of it. With us, we absolutely will ask questions like, what are you feeling? How is this coming along? Is there anything that I can alter on this? Which areas look a little less correct or more correct right now? Big, open, broad questions like that. So they feel open to having us alter it in any way or tell us which areas look stronger at this moment. And we keep working on the drawing until they feel comfortable. We're trying to document that memory at that time period under those sets of circumstances, meaning lighting, angle, all of those things, to the best of their memory, and we just go back and forth until they feel comfortable that it's
1: finished. Well, yeah, and I think it's important to realize exactly what you're trying to do. One of the things you're trying to do is create a recognition. So Correct. you're not doing an identification, right? You're not going to be taking this into court and saying, all right, there's Morgan. <laughs> 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 but you, you are trying to create a good enough representation from the memory so that somebody who knew the individual would be able to recognize the individual from that drawing.
2: That's exactly right. Thank you. Yes. It's a way of being the link between the person who saw our person of interest, the we'll call it a witness or a victim. They have this image in their head. And how do we get that image in their head into a way that we can use it? Because it is a piece of evidence. What they went through that day, their memory there of this person is evidentiary. However, it's not tangible. How do we take that memory to the crime lab? We can't. So the artists serve as the conduit in between. And so the victim or witness gives us the description. We turn those verbal words into a visual, tangible thing which is the sketch or the composite drawing they're called often. So then yes, our goal is for the person that is depicted in the drawing to be recognizable enough to someone who is, has experienced him before or seen him before. So it will go into bulletins, it will go cross jurisdictional lines between different police agencies in their information, and of course many times it is released to the public for tips, and then clearly the, the goal is for someone to say, that really looks like this person I've seen before and give us a, a name, and then that is recognition, but that is not identification.
1: The other analogy is that it's like a presumptive test. So if, a, if right. you're doing a identification of a controlled substance and you get a color of metric test out. Nobody's going to say, well, that's definitely cocaine, but it's a presumptive to cocaine. And you want to back that up with other kinds of things that help you to confirm that identification in the same way that the recognition that somebody has is a presumptive recognition, right? It's a presumptive way for then you to move on to whatever else you might do with that lead to get an identification.
2: Yes, that's a good analogy. Thank you. That's exactly right. If someone puts a, a name forward, that is absolutely going to be verified by something with heavier evidentiary value. And as we always say, nobody gets put in jail just because they look like someone in a drawing. Sometimes it seems that way or they feel that way, but I tell the victims that, too, when, when they are worried about the outcome of being involved, and then police officers, detectives as well. That's just a step. It's to create a lead in the investigation.
1: Sure. So there's a lot of different ways a forensic artist might do their work. We've just been talking about one aspect, which is drawing from memory, or you're doing this cognitive interview technique to draw out a memory and to do a drawing on that basis. But there are other types of forensic art that are done. So can you describe those for us? Oh,
2: sure. There are several categories or genres, if you will, of forensic art. I think sketching a suspect is what people are most familiar with and what you see the most. But gaining in awareness is this large problem we have in our country and other countries of missing persons and unidentified deceased persons. I think everyone has heard of people going missing, children and adults. Missing persons are a known problem. But beyond missing persons, I think what has become a larger issue in the popular consciousness is that there are many, many unidentified deceased persons. And I think the average person might wonder how can there be a deceased body and you you not know who that person is. There must be a way to identify them. And the reality is that ways to identify persons can be affected by the environment that they're in, of course, and that they're not always a homicide victim, which is what some people think. Many of these unidentified persons are victims of catastrophes, flooding, hurricanes. They are homeless, persons. Many of them are homicide victims. To give you an example, I can tell you from our missing and unidentified persons clearinghouse that we run at the state police, we have properly reported over a thousand unidentified deceased in Texas. And I know we're a large state, so other states would have lower numbers because they're smaller. But when you think of a running total, give or take, some get solved, but then you find more of a thousand unidentified people at any given time, it's a mass issue that needs to be addressed. It's a humanitarian issue. It's a legal criminal issue. So within that comes putting a face to this person. So if fingerprints are gone and you can't use fingerprints, if you've drawn DNA from the body and it hasn't hit on anything and you can look at their dentals but you don't know who to compare it to, those are your three heavy, this is how we those identify the, Those are the people. gold
1: standard IDs, Right. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So,
2: developing a face from the skeletal remains is another great way to try to get this unidentified person recognized.
1: And I know you're a big user of NamUs. We're big fans of NamUs. It's another NIJ program and enormously valuable resource for doing missing unidentified person uh, matching and, and resolution.
2: And I have to say, NamUs from the very start has been very supportive and proactive even about forensic art and including images in their profiles. They'll do images of other things too, say associated articles found with the body, if there's jewelry or pieces of clothing left, a belt buckle, even tattoos they'll show images of those in their files but they're really great about if we can come up with a face from these remains that they'll include that image as well for public viewing to help get this person identified so NamUs has always been supportive of forensic art and we appreciate that
1: so this would be under the title of facial reconstruction this is the genre that we're talking about yes
2: that's exactly right yes and
1: do you do any uh, age progression work yourself
2: We do, Um, and when I say we, I should say there are two full-time forensic artists with the Texas Department of Public Safety. Our positions are within the Texas Rangers, which are an an elite investigative division of our state police. So um, there are two of us full-time civilian forensic artists. So my partner and I both handle age progression cases. I'd like to say that we only do age progressions of missing adults the missing children are handled almost solely by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children.
1: I had the privilege of, of touring there and talking with them Did several you? times. Great. They do amazing work in age progression with they juveniles.
2: They do, yeah. and that is their focus almost solely. They do facial reconstructions when it's children's remains. They do those as well, So they, but mostly their focus is age progression and they have four full-time artists doing those cases. We leave that to them and we handle um, age progressions of long-term at-large fugitives to do fugitive updates you know try to get them located when they've been on the run and then long-term missing adults
1: okay and then the fourth version and this is one i'm not familiar with so we have drawing from memory we have facial reconstruction we have age progression and then image modification that was not one i understand can you explain what that means
2: I will explain my understanding and use of it. I think it's kind of a, a more catch-all that might cover some more areas and the people listening to this, especially those who do what I do, might say it may or may not fall into that category for them. But that it would be, as the term indicates, modifying an image in some way that's obviously supposed to help a case. So for example, you have a fugitive who is known to change his look often. So you've got a a photo a last known photo of this um, fugitive and you want to see what he might look like had if he cut off his hair if he grew facial hair if he gained 20 pounds or it's been 20 years and he's a known smoker how would that age his face so that would be an, an image modification of a known face so we aren't creating the face say from skeletal remains or from interviewing a victim we know his face but time has passed environmental factors have affected so they want our interpretation based on our knowledge of facial aging with respect to environmental factors and what we would come up with so that's one version of image modification another version would be video image clarification which is not the same as forensic video work that's a whole field unto itself but a lot of times people will say is is a sketch artist waning is forensic art a dying art because There's so many video cameras, and everybody has a phone that has a camera and video capabilities. There's video on every street corner, or there's cameras on every street corner. So people think, isn't everything being documented? You know, what would we need you for? So the fact is, that is true, but you have to look at the quality of those videos that are being made, and the perspective is really important, too. For instance, if there is a robbery in a convenience store or a bank... There is video of it happening, let's say, but what was the video's purpose for being in that store? It's to monitor everything going on in that store. It may even be to monitor the person working at that store. So it's set up high, and it's not at face-to-face level. So we may get the perpetrator on a video, but it's not close enough or clear enough or the correct perspective to give us individualizing facial features. So it does help in documenting that it happened, date and time stamp, maybe even give us a general size of the person, clothing, and maybe even some hair information, ancestry information, but it's not individualizing many times. So they might give us some of that video and have us give them our interpretation based on that we are facial experts, that we have a lot of history in facial features, to give them a clarified facial image in sketch form of what we believe this person would look like. And sometimes it is closer up to the face too. As A good example of that is ATM videos. So There is a camera in there, we all know that, but many times it's not as clear as you would want it to be. Or say it's at night, so you've got light bouncing off the street light, creating a haze, or it's raining and you've got those raindrops coming across. Again, the facial features are not really clear. They're kind of fuzzy or pixelated if you try to blow it up. So they'll give us that still image of a face and we collect Clarify it as to here's what we think how this would be explained and how what we think this person would look like based on what we can interpret and again that is in sketch form and they would put that forth as leads to try to get the person recognized
1: I knew in my head that video is oftentimes not very ideal you know, it's like Mr. Magoo from God's Eye View, right? <laughs> but the fact that an artist could be very helpful in that regard is, now that you say it, it's obvious to me.
2: Oh, thank uh, you. So
1: <laughs> one of the questions is, like, when should an investigator be turning to the forensic artist? And you've kind of given a rundown then, right? Oh, so okay. When you have an unknown suspect, but you have a victim who can describe the individual. Right. Or something along that line. When you are uh, have a, uh, a decedent, Are you trying to do reconstruction when you have somebody who's been, uh, you have a cold case potentially, right, that's been over some period of time? Right. Trying to do an update or some other kind of thing like that. You have these image modification applications as well. There's actually a fair number of times when a, a forensic artist can be very helpful to an investigation. You've got it. I'm
2: so impressed. You just lined it all out for me. I don't have to say it. Those are situations in which we could help. Anytime you've got an unknown face, let us help. As an example, our jurisdiction is the entire state of Texas, so 254 counties, enormous, right? Any of those agencies can call on us for assistance because our agency is an assisting agency. We will help any jurisdiction, military, all for free. Our services are there. So we get a wide variety of requests.
1: Let's look at the field as a whole then because Texas is very... Fortunate to have forensic artists that at the Texas Department of Public Safety, like yourself, to support them. Thank you for being there. Uh, but not every state does, and not every state necessarily has an examiner who's been or an artist who's been able to come into IAI. You're working through IAI to try to improve the profession uh, and even the certification of examiners. Can you talk about how the committee is working in that regard?
2: Membership in the IAI is completely voluntary, so it is something that we always talk about, promote, and explain how it's good for the field, it's good for you as an individual artist in your agency. There's so many advantages to being a member of the IAI, and we have two separate, one's a board and one's a committee. So there is a certification in forensic art. The only way you can become a certified forensic artist is through the IAI and there is separately there is what we call a science and practice committee and most disciplines of forensic science have a science and practice committee so that is what i chair i've been a member of since '09, and i've been a chair for about the past four years or so biggest thing uh, this week i can tell you is the culmination of the conference is our, is curriculum we are the ones in charge of pulling together the curriculum for the conferences, vetting that curriculum, listening to feedback, what do our students want to learn. And when I say students, I mean practicing forensic artists who are coming here for continuing education, training, myself included. Sometimes I just love to be a student. I don't want to be about all the organization or everything. I want to go and absorb. That's important to organize. What what do people want around the country? What does one agency how are they doing their forensic artwork as opposed to how we might do it and do they require or want training in a certain thing so that's a big part of what we work on all year long are getting speakers getting trainers to come do workshops for us and all of this counts as continuing education that can work towards certification if that's a goal of an artist to do at some point so a big part of the science and practice committee is ongoing long-term curriculum for our members but another big part of what we are working toward are always professionalism and standards and guidelines in our field working toward best practices with respect for that these processes are done differently in different areas and it's easy to talk to people in your own country but what are the other countries doing and that's what's wonderful about IAI is it is international so although the majority of our members come from the US we are starting to get more international members coming and international forensic artists it's so it's just a wonderful week of not just camaraderie but really learning what they do in other countries and maybe we need to learn from that and they learn from us as well so then how do you balance all of these different viewpoints and definitions terminology and practices and ending product how do you balance that into what is a best practice, what is a standard accepted final product. So we are working on that as well, which is a lot of discussion, it's a lot of visiting other agencies, having people come speak, review of the literature, writing new articles, many of those things. That's another thing that we promote through our our subcommittee is um, writing of articles. The IAI has two publications. One is more of a magazine Quarterly magazine for IAI members that is information updates from all the disciplines, and then separately they publish a the Journal of Forensic Identification, which is a scientific journal. And I'm really encouraging our forensic art participants to write up these cases. You get a solved case. Let's talk about. What processes did you use? How was that used in conjunction with the rest of the investigation? Forensic art is such a small part of a full investigation. You know, we we go in and we help where we can, give them some visuals, give them the face that they are looking for, hopefully, but we are not investigators, and then they take what we do to help them and go on and finish the investigation and hopefully solve the case. So us as the artwork segment of that investigation, how did our work work? combined with everything else it took to solve the case, what part did it play, and how did the case end up being solved? And in the end, a goal for us, of course, is to always see the person in life, or a photograph of that person, that we were depicting through our artwork, because that is how we learn.
1: There is a ground truth in the end, isn't there? That's the actual face in front of you, yeah.
2: It is, and what I'd like to have the opportunity to say is that it's natural to judge a forensic artist on... Well, how well did they do? How much does it look like the person in the picture? And that is part of it, but we would like to express everything that goes into developing that face. So you have to understand that that face came from an interview of a traumatized person, or that three-dimensional sculpture came from working with the remains of a very broken skull without a lot of context. So sometimes we don't have all the information we need to develop this perfect likeness or sometimes the photo that we receive at the end is this person came from a very broken situation in their life and there were only 10 pictures ever taken so they're not great quality or they don't have yearbook photos or they don't have a driver's license that's update and clear or we get a photograph that's 10 years ago so it is a great learning curve for us and it's um, it's how we go back and, and have checks and balances on some of our cases when we can see what the person really looked like in life. What can we learn from this? Now that we know what this person really looks like, let's go back and look at that skull structure and what the anthropologist report said and see how we can learn from each case. And the same would go with the suspect once they're identified uh, and we see them in life or a photo of them, go back to the interview and say, this is what she was trying to say this is what she was describing so it's a great learning experience for us
1: and that feedback is important with respect to what you're trying to do with iai i mean the difference between i'm just going to be a forensic artist and I'm actually going to be a certified forensic artist, is about these standards, these best practices, and how you put them into the profession. So as you learn from those cases where you actually are able to see that follow-up and you can see what, what went well and what could be improved, you can build that into the discipline and, and make it something where you actually are, both an artist and a scientist, you're able to, to bring everything to bear on that case.
2: Right, I would say so. Thank you. Yes, and there's, there's always a question with our certification process of, how, quote-unquote, strict do you make it? The process for certification is multifold. It ta- it's a several-month process. It's written exam. It's a practical exam. And it is a um, certain amount of time doing this work. It's a portfolio expression. So yeah, it takes time to build up. And so on the one hand, people will say, well, you don't want to make it unattainable because we're not trying to leave people out to where they say, oh, I only do this on a part-time basis, I'll never be certified. We're not trying to exclude people, but at the same time, you have to have a standard of excellence there, because you want someone who is certified in a certain subject to be rather a subject matter expert at that point, or at least working toward that. So it's a it's a blend of required reading, textbooks on the subject, written test practical exam, kind of a mock composite situation, and just knowledge, job, on-the-job knowledge, sure. so case experience.
1: So where is the field heading? I, was, I did not expect you to mention sculpture. So you, do you do sculpture as well yourself? Yes, I do. Okay. Well, that must be much more difficult than drawing, or is it not? You tell me.
2: Well, it's just a different genre of art altogether. I mean, that's also a misconception, I think, is someone who, say, oh, I can draw, and I love crime, and I'm a detective, so I can just do the sketches for my unit. It's not quite the same. There needs to be training for each category of forensic art. There really does. So I think some people, maybe they do the suspect sketches, and so they think, well, I do that, so I'm a forensic artist, so I could take this skull and give you a a reconstruction of the face when those are two almost different things. The only thing that's similar is that it's both about the human face but the execution is different. The information coming in is different. One is witness memory and interviewing. It's very cognitive. It's very psychologically based and then you're using art to create the face. The other one, let's say, you have some photos of of a deceased person who's somewhere between fresh, if you will, and skeletal. Some people call that a soft tissue reconstruction. You're not quite down to where you can read the bone, but they're beyond recognizable. What do you do with that when all you've done before is interview victims of a crime and created a drawing? How is that the same as interpreting taphonomic change of a body and creating a face after death. They are different. The training behind that is also rightfully different. So one of the things we like to do and promote here at the III is cross-training within the different categories of forensic art. We don't want people out there practicing that aren't skilled and qualified enough. And it's, it's sometimes a touchy thing because it is hard to get training for some people. It's hard to travel and come to these conferences, we understand that, to get away and have the time and the, the money to get cross-trained. And sometimes they also think, I don't want to say no to this agency who's asked for my forensic art services. So you have that balance of, Yes, but each one of these cases involves a victim and a story that goes with that victim and a case that's going to evolve from that victim. So don't we owe it to all of those situations to do the best, most educated job possible? And sometimes doing the right thing might be saying, I'm not quite qualified. Let me find you someone who is.
1: Sure. So, so there's at least sketching and sculpture involved. Are there other other modes that are coming into practice? Uh, you know, 3D printing or yes. other kind. Of, uh, so, so tell us a, a little bit about where the field is heading in that regard.
2: Well, sure. Is as varied as there are personalities of artists. There is varied um, applications of such, and there isn't, there isn't one way that's really more correct than the other, as long as it's in executed well. So, you will find some people that say hand drawing, hand sketching is the best way to come up with a composite drawing of a suspect. And I think that's more situational. That's because you're in an interview room with a victim. It's a closed private setting. You don't want distraction maybe by a lot of technology. You want that kind of what we're doing, sitting right here at a table, looking each other in the eye and having a conversation and at the same time I just happen to be drawing. You know, that's what's going on but handled well a composite drawing from interviewing a witness can be done digitally that's fine you just just as long as the practitioner doesn't get so involved with their face in the screen and the technology and by the same token sometimes the witnesses get very interested too they're thinking it's very cool and interesting to watch this talented skilled artist come up with this face using the different applications so what's important to remember for composite drawing results is that you don't want it to be too photographic in the final image because it's not a known face at this point. This is an interpretation of someone's memory, as you said earlier, which in and of itself has to be handled with the appropriate um, questioning. So we only know when we're finished with this sketch when the witness tells us that mm-hmm. we're finished, that this is the best that they can remember him, we've done on any and all alterations they want for us to do to make it look the most like what they can remember from that event. We don't know if that's the actual truth. We're just documenting what they remember. So if you make it this hyper-realistic Photoshop pulling through photographic elements to where the end looks like a photograph. It just has the word composite above it. Cognitively, we believe that is too exacting because you're wanting leads to come in. You're wanting tips to say, I think this looks like so-and-so. So if it is so photographic that it really only looks like one person, whoever that photograph is of, we find you don't get as many leads as you need. So, regarding it's really interesting.
1: There should, there should be a study, a cognitive psychology study about that. That's a fascinating And
2: there probably insight. have been. I wish I could yeah. just cite it off the top of oh. my head but it's true we have to think about the cognitive bias of people looking at these images because that is one of the main modes of how forensic art helps cases is that they are seen they are seen by law enforcement they are seen by the public they get put onto NamUs so how is the public going to interpret what they see well when it's a sketch of a suspect having it be a little bit open to interpretation is key because then you'll get, a lot of, you'll get a lot of tips, hopefully. And so that's why many of them are in black and white as well. So some of it is up to interpretation. Of course, if we know something really identifying, like he had blue eyes, I know he did, I won't forget them, or he had a red hat, I can promise you it's a red hat, we will introduce elements of color as well. But you have to be very careful about skin tone and implying too much. So you'll see a lot more neutral shades on composite drawings. Regarding facial reconstruction, what you mentioned earlier about sculpture versus computer-generated versus hand-drawn, you still see quite a wide variety. I will say there is a push to go toward computer-generated computer-generated doesn't mean an artist is not involved because who's working the program there's someone behind the keyboard like at National Center for Missing and Exploited Children there are artists handling that software and creating those images even though they're
1: oh. the people have skills where they don't you don't want me doing any of the work I sing terribly I draw terribly oh. and whether I use a computer or a sketch pencil either one Well,
2: I'm, <laughs> in a way I'm glad to hear you say that you understand that even though there is a computer there's still someone behind it that has to have that knowledge of facial anatomy how do people age what does this ancestry mean versus that ancestry what is this dental work how is that going to affect how that person held their occlusion in life all of these things are important to use to come up with this this image so there's a lot of knowledge behind